Good morning. You guys got to do better than that. Good morning. All right, there we go. Uh, those of you on Facebook and YouTube, welcome as well. And those of you that are here, you wouldn't have seen the Facebook comment where our office manager, Christine Schmicky, said that she was groggy this morning because she had a new grandson born last night. So I, I, congratulations to Christine and Dave on the new grandson. I don't have any details, but I have a sneaking suspicion they will find their way into our information for next week, <laughs> considering Christine comes up with all that. Uh, we're in Revelation uh, chapter 19, verse 11, uh, into the end of chapter 20. Two more weeks, today and next week, and today is the last hard week, I think. that We've talked about it's, it's a book about now, it's about the struggles the church is going through uh, in Revelation, it's a book about the struggles we are going through right now. Next week is all about the consummation of it all. It's not about now. Well, it'd be great if it was about now. If he shows up this week, it will be about now. But uh, next week is, a, is, is the perfect way to end it. All throughout this series, we've seen these two clashing kingdoms. We know there's only one victor. We know the slain lamb has defeated the dragon, that we are his. Last week, we were called to see the difference between those two kingdoms and what they bring. And today we're going to look a little more in depth at the king, the lamb, the slain lamb, and his kingdom. And uh, I've asked Cedric and Myrna to read the scripture. They did it on video. They're actually sitting right there. I should have just brought them up here to read. But we'll watch Cedric and Myrna read Revelation 19, 11 through 20, verse 15. Anytime. Okay, the reading of God's word for this Sunday. Then I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges them and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has the name written that no one knows about him, about it but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which he strikes down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and horses, and the flesh of all I saw the beast and the king's fears with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who, was, who in its presence had done the signs of, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest of them were slain by the sword. 
that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven and holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years is ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain to the earth, plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And then, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written, Now, the wind was my fault. Um, sorry about that. You listen on the phone, you don't hear it at all, but you put it on that computer and run it through the system and it gets loud. But I think it's kind of appropriate, that uh, wind and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot in this text. Pull out your Bibles, look at, at verses 11 of 19 through 20, verse 15. I'm going to cover about 30% of it, just because there's no way, unless you guys want to stay here for the next week and a half, 
that we're going to do it. I would encourage you, there's a great book called Discipleship on the Edge by Daryl Johnson. And, and I've stole the majority of what I'm teaching from him. Uh, it's a great book. And also, I'm, I'm not really going to touch on chapter 20, 11 to 15 at all. I have put on my website, jeffkuhn.ca, a link to a sermon 12 years ago on that exact passage. So I'm, if you think I'm skipping it, you can go back and listen to that. Um, but what, what I want to focus in on to kind of give some grace to the preacher today and give him a focus is I want us to look at this king and the kingdom. And we're going to start with a description of the king. The first thing that's clear is that this rider on the white horse is kind of the central focus, central point of focus in chapters 19 and 20. He's a warrior king, but he's a different kind of warrior than you might expect. He's a warrior who's worthy, first of all. You look at the descriptions of the text, it calls him faithful and true. The Greek there means literally genuine. One who sees things as, if it re- as they really are, one who's trustworthy, or one who judges with justice, faithful and true. I-, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation of dependency underneath the power of someone else when you don't trust them. Have you ever had a boss that you just didn't trust? Uh, for me, I always feel it when we drive across the border, even though I have nothing to hide. I know those guys can make me do anything they want me to do, right? Th- there's, there's some of that fear when you have someone that you don't trust. But what it's saying that this warrior king is faithful and true. He's the one that's trustworthy. He acts with justice. And, and, and not only is he true, but he understands the hearts of the people. That's what in verse 12 it says, he has eyes like blazing fire. He can look right into them and know what's going on. He can purify and see what's inside of them. Now, if the border guards had eyes of blazing fire, I would rest more because I know I've not got any contraband. They could see that by looking into my heart. I could relax a bit more. He's worthy because he's faithful and he sees things as they really are. He will not be fooled. He's also powerful. In in the imagery there, there's multiple symbols of power. It says, and on his head were many crowns. Now, this crown is a symbol of victory, right? We've seen crowns all throughout uh, the story. In chapter 12, verse 3, we saw the great dragon. He had seven heads and seven crowns. In 13.1, we saw the beast from the sea. He has seven heads and ten crowns. But with Jesus, it says he has many crowns on one head right? He surpasses all of them. You know, you, I, I, I was thinking this week about these Olympic athletes who win multiple medals, and I came across this picture of Michael Phelps in four Olympics. Oh, that's the wrong one, Glenn. <laughs> that's the right one. Now he snuck it in on me. <laughs> he told me this one's more appropriate. <laughs> Only Glenn. We need some help up there. Believe me, we need some help. This is Michael Phelps who shifting gears to Michael Phelps, in four Olympics won 23 gold medals. Now you look at that and you think, I think that guy knows how to swim, right? He's just, just the victory that's symbolized in that shows you he's competent. And what you see in this picture of the one on the horse is, is many crowns on this one head. He's the one who's worthy. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Now, in that ancient culture, we we realized there was kind of this mystical sense around a name. And if you knew somebody's name, it symbolized that you had some kind of power over them. And as we read through Revelation, it names the dragon, it names the beasts. 
and, and, and their names are known. But here's one riding on the white horse who has a name that nobody knows but himself. And it says he'll rule over them with, with an iron scepter. Now, that's a quote from Psalm 2. You've got to realize what that triggers in the mind of a Jewish person who's grown up singing the Psalms, right? Like if I say to you this morning, if I started twinkle, twinkle, little star, and what's in your head? How I wonder what you are. It's, and, and it'll be in there all day now. You'll be singing it and, and being angry at, at the pastor for getting that tune in your head. But when, when they said one who ruled with an iron scepter, the Jewish mind would hear that phrase. And think of Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's break their chains, they say. Let's throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. Just that description that John uses triggers this whole psalm in the heads of the listeners. It's a powerful warrior, one who's king of kings and lord of lords. And there is none greater. And it's not that he just thinks he's great. One of my favorite stories of all time is the story about Muhammad Ali, the boxer. Right? Float like a butterfly, sting like... You remember Muhammad Ali? He was on a plane one time. And the stewardess is passing by and she notices that Muhammad Ali doesn't have his seatbelt fastened. So she says to him, Mr. Ali, you need to fasten your seatbelt. And he looks back at her and smiles and says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looks back and smiles and says, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> fasten your seatbelt, right? And, and that's the, the point here is, right, Jesus, Jesus is not only claiming this, it's true of him. He's worthy to do what he does. He's powerful and victorious. Now, the unique thing about him is that he's a warrior. He's one who's already bloodied. It says in verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. How many kings go out to war with bloodied clothes? Now, maybe they ride home from war with blood on their clothes. But this is, he's coming into the battle with blood. How did it get that way? It says at the end of verse 15, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, you remember that phrase? That's from the chapter back in uh, chapter 14. The angel swung his sickle on the, on the earth, gathered his grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath, and they were trampled in the winepress outside the city. And remember, we said that's a symbol of Jesus being crucified out the city, outside of the city. That's the, the same term that was used. It's a reflection on the book of Hebrews, which talks about Jesus being crucified outside the city. And so the point is, the warrior has a robe stained with his own blood, with the blood of the slain lamb. It's that picture again from chapter 4 and 5, where I, I, I heard the lion of the tribe of Judah, and I turned and looked, and there was a, a lamb that looked like if it, it had been slain. He's worthy, he's powerful, because he won the victory already at the cross. This is a different kind of warrior king than what you normally expect with a different kind of army. You know, most of us have sung Onward Christian Soldiers. We've sung that hymn for years. Today's text challenges the images that we associate with that song, right? The warriors of God are his people. And what's interesting to note is their uniform. Look at verse 14. 
of chapter 19. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, I've never been in the military, and I'm not a military expert, but I would guess that linen robes, white and clean, are not standard issue for military. Where's the armor? Where's the weapons? Where's the camouflage and the grease paint that'll keep you hidden, right? Where's, where's the helmets, the, the, the weapons, the technological devices that they have? All we see is the army of heaven robed in white linen robes. Because these robes give insight into the role that the army is supposed to play. Now, if you look back in the previous chapter, or earlier in the chapter, in 19.8, it's talking about the bride of Christ, which is us, in the same chapter, 19, verse 8. And it says, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. So we, we are this army of God, wearing this fine linen as our soldier's uniform. And it says in there that that fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. That gives us a little indication about our weapons. But there's another thing about linen, and that is linen was the uniform of a priest. Linen is what the priest would wear. The person who, through sacrifice, would point people to God, who would make a way for that connection to happen. And, and I think what, what we're seeing here is the army of God coming in linen shows that our role is as priests to offer, offer ourselves as sacrifices so that people can see who the warrior is, who the warrior king is. Now, don't misunderstand me. The battle was won on the cross, but in some way, and I, I don't quite understand this. I think this is what Paul's hinting at when he says, in my body, I fill up the sufferings of Christ. I don't think he's saying Christ's sufferings were lacking, but I think he's saying as he suffers... As he suffers for the world, somehow that's a sacrificial act that points people beyond him to the king. We live out these righteous acts that we see in 19 verse 8, empowered by the Spirit. And we offer ourselves the, the body of Christ in the world today as a sacrifice for all who will come. That's our role. That's why the saints are dying throughout the book of Revelation. It's, 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 they're being sacrificed to show the love and patience of God. It's hard to, that's hard to stomach. It's, it's a different kind of battle, a different kind of warrior king when we die for the good of the world. And we also see even this king utilizes a different kind of weapon. The only weapon listed in the passage is mentioned in verse 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And see, the same person who, who wrote this and who wrote verse 13, his name is the Word of God, was the guy who wrote John 1.14, the Gospel of John 1-14, in the beginning was the Word. See, what he's saying here is his weapon is actually Jesus, the Word of God. Myrna, when I said, Myrna, would you and Cedric read? She said, she told Cedric, Tell him I would prefer it to be the gospel according to John instead of the revelation. And I said, but Myrna, revelation is the gospel according to John. It's about Jesus dying in our place. And she agrees. She thinks that's good, but she's happy to... Myrna, will you be happy to get out of this book? She'll be happy to move on, right? Good. See, the weapon that God uses in this battle that isn't really a battle is Jesus. See, in Jesus, we see the way God works. I, I was reading... Uh, around these passages, and one person in their blog, a theological writer, said this, and I just, 
it caught me. He says at some point, because he was talking about you've got this warrior, Jesus, showing up. You know, he's got his name written on us. He's got this, he's, he's, he's going to destroy everything. And his, he said at some point, we have to choose between the sword-carrying God of Revelation and Jesus, who says love your enemies. See, he was saying, you've got to realize, sometimes we overemphasize this love for enemies because you've got this other God in Revelation who's going to cut their heads off. And you've got to choose between the two. And I say, no, you don't. Because they're one and the same. His weapon that he's using is the word of God, Jesus, who died on a cross. See, the only sword that God carries in Revelation that we see here is Jesus, the word. He forgives. Jesus, who allows others to hurt and use him and responds with sacrificial love. That, this is the method of the warrior king and his army. As we move on to the end of chapter 19, we see what I'll call a meal to establish a kingdom. It's another one of these famous gory scenes at the end of chapter 19. The supper of God, so dark and bloody, (laughs) we can often forget that it's not the only meal mentioned. It's not the only feast mentioned in chapter 19. There's one chapter and two meals in chapter 19. And the contrast is striking. In the first 10 verses, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's full of joy, laughter, celebration. And in the last part, 17 to 21, there's this gory supper of God, full of blood, flesh, death, and destruction. Perhaps nowhere in Revelation is the end result of the wicked more graphically portrayed than the end of chapter 19. And we need to sense the gravity of the moment. And it moves on then in chapter 20 to talk about this reign that's established out of this meal. And, and I want to be honest, in chapter 20, there's lots that we don't understand in chapter 20. And I'm, I'll just be really blunt about that. It talks about how this thousand-year reign of God is going to play out. Um, and there's, there's three basic ways this has been understood. We'll put a picture up to kind of uh, lay it out to you. I'll talk really quick. There's, a, there's what we call a pre-millennial view, in other words, before the millennium, but there's a thousand-year reign of God that happens after the return of Jesus. Uh, It's a literal thousand years. Jesus returns, strips Satan of all his power, and sets up a thousand literal-year reign. Uh, There's a variation in that. Some people believe that happens before a time called the tribulation. Some people it happens after a time called the tribulation. I've already said I'm not so sure that there is a time called the tribulation. I mean, maybe we can say that in North America, but go to North Korea and tell them the tribulation is still coming. And it just doesn't make a lot of biblical sense. But anyway, that, that's one way, this, this premillennial viewpoint. There's another one called postmillennial. People think that what's going to happen is, is God's going to come and bind up Satan and the Spirit's going to grow and grow and things are going to get better and better and better for a thousand years and then Christ will finally return at the end of the millennium. That's called a postmillennial viewpoint. It was pretty popular until we had those two world wars and people thought, okay, maybe we're not getting better and better and better. A little harder to hold to that in the, in the world we live today, but it might be making a bit of a comeback. There's a third way people look at it called amillennial, which means, well, ah actually means no, but it's not saying there's no millennium, but it's saying this thousand-year reign is symbolic. And those people would say, well, the New Testament only speaks of one return of Jesus, that he's coming again. And they would say, you know, what he's done is in his first coming, he set up his kingdom, which he said, the, the kingdom of God is at hand, and it's a symbolic reign. It's not a literal thousand years. Now, I'm, I fall more into that camp. I'll tell you, I, it's okay to disagree on these things. It's important to listen and learn to each other. All three of those stress good things 
and deny other things. So there's lots that we don't understand about this thousand-year reign. But there's plenty that we do, and that's what I want to focus on. These meals, this wedding feast of the Lamb and the Supper of God, establish a kingdom, and three things that we know for sure about this kingdom is that Satan is bound, released, and defeated. It says in verse 2 and 3, He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. And then in verse 10, he says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that, that's good news, that Satan is bound, released, and defeated at some point during this. And, and after, th- after years and years of theological study, I'm going to tell you that beyond a shadow of a doubt, and with no reservations, I have no idea when exactly this plays out. <laughs> I, I don't know. I know he's bound, released, and then, then defeated forever. But I don't know how that all plays out. But I have read other scriptures that make me think. Like in Mark, in Mark, Jesus starts by saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. And then Mark tells us rapid fire these stories of miraculous healing after healing after healing. Several demon possessions where the demons are cast out, Right? The kingdom of heaven has come. These, these demons are being defeated. Uh, people are being healed. And then Jesus says in Mark chapter 3, verse 23, he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself, he is divided and he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, he says, Jesus is saying this after all these miracles, after he's talked about the kingdom coming, In fact, no one can enter the strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. And then he can rob his house. Now, what's interesting is that Greek word for ties up the strong man is exactly the same word that John uses in Revelation for binding Satan. And then just before going to the cross in John chapter 12, Jesus says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And after the resurrection, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, one of the things that's possible, one of the things that's possible is that Jesus in his coming did that binding at that point. Because remember, we saw back in chapters 12 and 13, the dragon was hurled down and then these two beasts show up. I talked about how it's it's a politically motivated power and religiously motivated power, these, how the dragon works through these two beasts. And, and is it possible that Satan is bound in using these beastly servants to rule his kingdom now? I, I don't know. Maybe. That's food for thought. But I do know he will be bound. At some point he'll be released briefly, and then he'll be destroyed. God has the power over him. That's why he's the warrior. The second thing that, that we know about this kingdom is that resurrection is a reality. If you look at chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. Now, he saw their souls. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, one thing may, that may surprise you about the resurrection, I mean, the text says everyone will be resurrected at different times, but everyone will be resurrected either to life or to judgment. And the passage talks about the first resurrection and the second death, and it's, this is why there, you need a whole other sermon on the rest of this. I'll try to make what I see as clear as possible and as clear as I can see it. My understanding is that all will be part of the first resurrection, but not at the same time. Remember, it says there, the followers of Jesus will be immediately raised to be with him because he has work for them to do. And those who have refused to surrender will not be resurrected until the time of judgment. That's verse 5. The joy for those who are the followers of Jesus is that they have nothing to fear from the second death. Now, what I think is happening here, boy, I'm realizing now I need two more sermons to do that, but I think what's happening in this time is what we see is it's our common perception of heaven. This part where the bodies are not resurrected yet, but our souls are with God in heaven. I think that's what's happening in this time. That, that when people die, they're resurrected to be with the Lord until he returns. We'll talk more about that next week. But when the final resurrection comes, which would be for believers the second when their bodies are raised, and for those who are not believers the first... We'll once again have these, we'll have these new bodies and we'll reign with him forever and ever in this eternal kingdom. Like I say, I'm going to get into more of that next week. I'm sure it's probably as clear as mud because even as I say it, I think, you know what? I didn't, I didn't land that one. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. But I, I want to keep going. The third thing you can see about this thousand years is Jesus will not be king, but he is king. And that's, that's the point I really want you to get. When he left the disciples in Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, not will be given to me, but has been given to me. And that's why at the beginning of Revelation, it says Jesus is the firstborn, this is Revelation 1, 5, from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is not going to be the king when he returns. That's why I I lean more toward the amillennial, that he's reigning right now because he already is the king. He's already overcome. Now, we don't understand the way the kingdom looks, but that's, that's, you know, you'd think if it's his kingdom, everything would be done the way you think we'd want it to be done. But I think that's what Revelation's all about. He is king, even if it doesn't look like it. In Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, it says, talking of God's power, this power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, not when he will raise him from the dead, when he seated him, not will seat him, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above rule and authority, power and dominion in every title. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet, not will place all things under his feet. God did it, past tense. And appointed him to be head over everything for the church, not will appoint him, but it, it's all past tense. Jesus is already the ruler of all. We're not waiting for his return for him to take charge. And I think that's the message of Revelation. Even in the struggle, even in the martyrdom, even in the death and the suffering, he is still the king. And and he will even use the martyrdom and the death and the destruction and the brokenness of his church to glorify himself. That's, That's what he does. That's the way he works. And so we'll wrap up looking at living as a subject of the kingdom today. How do we live that? You know, sometimes there's so much that's difficult in here to understand that we just kind of write it all off. But there's three quick things 
I want you to see his applications. First, this text focused on the king says we need to seek to see Jesus fully. It's the revelation of Jesus. Hebrews tells us, you know, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. We need to know not just kind of what he is. We need, to, we need to see him fully. One of the most unique times of my life was when I was probably in grade six, seven, and my brothers were away at college. They're quite a bit older than me, six, seven years older, and they, they got girlfriends. And they hadn't had girlfriends in high school, so that was kind of unusual. And, and, and my mom and dad, I'd hear them talking about this. And so I would have these perceptions of what this girl was like that they were dating. And they brought them home. Actually, they're both married to them now, believe it or not. Um, but I, I laugh as I think of my perceptions in my head of them. And as they came home, nothing, it was not bad. It's just I had a perception of what my brother's girlfriends were going to be. And then they came home, and they weren't what I had perceived in my head. And I think very often we have a perception of Jesus, a picture of how we think he's going to be, who we think he might be, but we don't really see him fully for who he is. We, we see him as kind of this life coach who's trying to make my life better. You know, give me five steps to a happy marriage and, and four steps to deal with the bully and, and three steps to be financially secure. He's going to help me through that. And, and that's not a full picture of Jesus. This is the guy on the white horse with the, the sword of the word of God. Who's, who's got blood on his cloak already from offering himself. See, often we need to unlearn our perceptions of who Jesus is to actually see who he really is. I challenge you to start reading the New Testament again and to say, God, show me who you are. What, what does Jesus care about? Where, how did Jesus spend his time? What themes pop up over and over and over again for Jesus? You know, I think we've often not even intentionally, but kind of unintentionally, thought of him as somebody who's kind of successful, middle-class North American. You know, I saw one of the, the Anglican leaders said, you know, Jesus was not white. And I thought, we shouldn't have to say that. <laughs> he wasn't white. You know, but we've got this perception in our mind. And, and kind of middle-class North American who, who has very wise things to say, and it's looked upon well by society. It's a far cry from one who said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. He's the one who blasted the religious people and welcomed the sinner. The one who had no place to lay his head. Because we, we've got to look at him and see him fully and then let who he is direct how we are. We're called to follow his example and imitate his life. You know, Paul writes in Philippians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You need to live like he lived. One of the key ways that we follow is to fight with his weapons, to see our uniform for battle as the uniform of a priest who offers ourselves in sacrifice for the world so that they can see Jesus. We spend our lives pointing people back to something God has done on their behalf. You see, the goal of the priest is to live in such a way so that people see God. What if... Okay, what, think of the non-Christians in your circle that you know. Just, just picture them in your head. People that don't know Jesus, that you're interacting with, whether it's online or, or at work or whatever. What if you saw your role with those people around you who aren't Christians 
as the role of a, a servant or a priest who's willing to do whatever it takes for them to clearly see Jesus. And, and I want to encourage you that that doesn't mean you have to be right all the time. Sometimes we see as Christians our goal is to be right. We've got to win the argument. We've got to stand up and prove this. That may not be it. The goal is to live in such a way so that people see Jesus, looking at who he was to determine how we are. And finally, one of the clearest indicators <clears throat> that we're living as a priest among people those who, those who need Jesus is that we pray and live for a packed out feast. There's those two images in chapter 19, and they're, they're positioned there, I think, in stark contrast to make you think. I did a wedding Friday night for a guy in Maple Ridge, a guy used to work at camp. Joyous celebration, people telling fun stories, laughter, everybody having a great time. It was kind of raining off and on, and we were all outside, but then it just worked, and it was just a beautiful time for the family to celebrate this new young couple, a wedding feast, Right? And then you see in contrast to that, this supper of God where the birds gorge on the flesh of these people who've resisted. And I I want you to let those images settle in your mind and sit with that contrast. We need to to be unsettled by that, right? Because there's a wedding feast of the Lamb, but people who resist and refuse the Lamb, it's pretty clear there's suffering, difficulty, pain, separation from God. And we are the priests of God in the world. We are the body of Christ and, and we need to pray and live so that this feast of the Lamb will be packed out and nobody shows up over here. That's the way our lives need to be. To see the difference clearly in what we're called to live toward and pray toward. You see, Revelation shows that in His patience, as God is patiently waiting, people will come and come to know Him. And our role is to live in such a way as the priests of God to make that happen. And then... Next week, we're going to talk about what it looks like when it all actually comes fulfilled. So hang in there. One more week. You guys have, you, you got to be checking in next week because you can't have gone through all this and check out before chapter 21, 22. Let's pray. God, there's so much in this passage we don't understand. There's so much that's complicated and multi-layered and we can be overwhelmed by it. But I pray that your spirit would just apply the most clear things to our lives. You are the victor. You're the one who wins. You're the, you're, the, you're the warrior king. But that you fight in a different way than the world fights. That you offer yourself for the good of those who hate you. And God, help us to, to live as priests in this world who lay down our lives for people Help us to trust that you, will, that you have won the victory, that it will come to fruition, that we don't have to, to prop it up, to prop up your victory and make sure it happens, but that we can lay down our lives for the people around us so that they can see you and the way you operate very clearly. Help us to pray and live for this wedding feast that everyone we know will be there celebrating on that day. In Jesus' name, amen. This is one of those sermons where I go home and I scratch my head and I think I'm never going to do that again. Um, I want you to hear something really clearly, okay? And, and maybe I've tried to make this point over and over. Um, you can read Revelation and be really frustrated because who's this king and who's that king and who's the dragon and who's the beast and when is the millennium? 
It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of who this is, not the revelation of your end times timeline. So when you're frustrated because you don't understand what pieces are, I want you to come back and focus on what we can see, and that is clearly who Jesus is, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that passage, my my prayer this week would be Philippians 2. Your attitude, your life should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is the revelation of Jesus, the one who ultimately descends to the lowest point and offers himself because he loves the world. And that's what we're called to emulate. He said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And that's my prayer for you this week. Amen.